This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we reflect on the most recent round of Fashion Weeks with Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. We'll head to Florence, Milan and Paris. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Well, I, I think I've set it up in the intro. Welcome to the show, Natalie Theodosi. It's It's been months, it feels. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a while. It's good to be back. It's nice to have you in the office. You, you're away for two weeks. Everything just sort of felt quiet and, and sad without you sitting next to me. Despite London being sunny, we missed your sunny disposition, but you, you were out doing very important work covering uh, fashion for us at, at Monocle for the magazine and for this radio show. I mean, tell me where you were. I started off in Florence and then went to Milan and Paris. So it was a mix of seeing some huge spectacles, really big shows, but also having conversations with designers in their showrooms, looking for new brands around the trade fair in, in Florence and just trying to take it all in. So you are going out and seeing shows, but you're also doing this trade fair component as well well. Tell me a little bit about that in Florence. Uh, tell me about Pitti Uomo. Exactly. In Florence, there is a mix of uh, shows and appointments all around the trade fair um, at Pitti Uomo, which uh, takes place at the Fortezza da Basso in the centre of Florence. You have this huge space with thousands of menswear specialist brands that come together to show new collections. And what was really interesting this time around was to discover brands from all over the world, Usually it's really centered around Italian tailoring, which is always a focus for Pitti Uomo, but it has really grown into a global event. So you had brands from all across Europe, younger brands that are joining the fair for the first time, and also brands from Japan and Korea and, and the US that really had something new to offer. And, and it's great to see all these designers coming together and, and it's a space also to, for them to take inspiration and start conversations between them, I think. Why this global shift? Do you have any understanding of why all of a sudden, I guess it's, it's much more globally focused rather than just focusing on Italian tailoring? After the pandemic, um, a lot of brands, especially in Japan, for example, have needed to expand their businesses abroad and, and bring in new revenue. So like us in Europe, we have them coming to fairs like PT Uomo and, and selling for the first time in, in some cases their collections more widely to European retailers and American retailers as well. So I think it's great news for us in Europe because we can get more easy access to Japanese fashion, which, I mean, it's the best quality, best silhouettes and, and really good design. I mean, what, what sets Pitti broadly apart from, I guess, other fashion weeks? There's obviously a very, very nice global spread now, but what, what else is, is different versus, say, what you saw after you left Florence in, in Milan and Paris? I think it's this specialty in menswear, tailoring in, in particular. Another thing that PT is great for is just the people watching. I think it's one of the few fashion gatherings where I think it's remained quite independent and the people that you see are not in any way or form dressed by brands. You, you don't have that kind of celebrity spectacle. So you really get to see people that dress themselves in their own clothes and they have real sense of style. So there's inspiration in that sense. And also 
every year they curate a small collection of shows and uh, bring in different guests. So it's an opportunity to discover new brands. Or this time we had Fendi as the special guest. So it was a, a big show and, and a really special one. Give us a little bit of background about what, what people saw. So Fendi uh, has recently bought a factory in Capanuccia, which is just uh, outside uh, the centre of Florence. It's a huge investment that LVMH made, I think one of the biggest single investments in a factory, and and they've renovated it and created a state-of-the-art facility for leather manufacturing. So Fendi invited everyone um, who was attending PT to Capanuccia on the final day of the fair to see their new collection but what was even more interesting than seeing the new collection was that everything happened around the artisans workstation so we saw Sylvia Fendi's new designs but at the same time we also saw her team at work making the leather bags as the models were walking down the runway so it was just really heartwarming to see them get the credit they deserve so I was really lucky to go to uh, Capanuccia and see the factory just before the show when it was all calm and then the Fendi team was preparing the show and I I spoke to Sylvia then. She was very calm. She said those few hours before the show is actually the calmest because there's nothing you can do. It's all done. You just have to wait for the guests to come and for the show to start. So we had a really nice chat about the new collection but also about how important it was for her to bring in everyone right at the source of where everything is being produced and, and to see how Fendi really operates. Amazing. Well, let's hear from Silvio Venturini Fendi, the brand's artistic director of accessories and menswear, now. It's the place where we do our research, our innovation. We work with all our artisans. So it's really the heart of the company. I think it's good for you to see, but also for the people who work here to be involved in something that they never see because uh, normally they never are with us when we do a fashion show. Tell me a little bit more about your relationship with the artisans because you're, you're really bringing them to the center of the story. Yeah. Usually it's, it's more behind the scenes role. Designers are just the spokesperson of a company, but in reality it's much different. There's this sense of community is very strong and friendly mm. and they are part of it and I would say one of the most important parts. If you are a designer, you cannot escape from having a very good relationship with pattern making, with people that do innovation, research materials. Those key people are so important and vital, and for me, they are my colleagues. And it's nice to, in an optic of transparency, which is a word that I think is very uh, right for the moment, it's interesting to make people discover how we do our things, we tend to think that being a craftsman is something like an old kind of professional path. There is this uh, cinematic vision of a craftsman, wooden table, doing points and repetitive work, quite alienating to me. In reality, it's much different. It looks like more like a, a scientific like laboratory. A lab. yeah, yes. a lab. There are so many young uh, craftspeople who are here because we teach also here, we train them to be a complete craftsman. Before it was different, the work. It was a bit repetitive. Somebody was devoted to do just the handles of bag. Another was just doing pockets, all your life doing a pocket. Today it's totally different. Everyone is trained to do the complete cycle. 
they start the bag from the beginning to the end. This makes people much more proud of the product because they could even some of them sign the bags inside. I know that they had put codes <laughs> to know who made it, which is very nice. I think that it's going to be interesting to show people not only how we make things, but also how interesting it can be to be the artisans of tomorrow. I guess you invested a lot in making it appealing and ensuring that the quality of life of people working here is amazing. Well, I think with, that people are I mean, central the building. Yeah. Everybody talks about sustainability. Yeah. Sustainability is not only devoted to products and to materials, but also to people. That was Sylvia Venturini-Fendi there. Now, she was talking about her relationship with the craftspeople. You mentioned that you, I guess, saw it on show there. I mean, how, how critical is, is the role that these people at the factory play in maintaining this brand's reputation as, you know, an outstanding label with impeccable tailoring? I think it's hugely important, and I think those are the skills that can keep a luxury brand alive and, and can make or break a reputation because at the end of the day you pay a premium for that kind of handmade quality. And people like uh, Sylvia Venturini-Fendi are really acutely aware of it and that's why they're making such a huge investment in this new factory and they're also making sure that these uh, workers are treated well. They have an amazing environment now to work in. They're also incorporating a training facility so that younger people can come along and these skills are passed on because in the last few years, it, it's been hard to recruit people and to make sure that there's a future to this job, given that digital, fast-paced environments have become much more popular than these artisanal skills. I couldn't have said that better myself. We'll be right back after this. Monocle's July-August double issue contains our annual quality of life survey, where we rank the world's top cities, meet local heroes and tour the neighbourhoods getting it right. See if your city made the cut and where topped our livable leaderboard. Elsewhere, we head to Bratislava to meet its architect-turned-mayor, visit an innovative infrastructure project in rural Alabama, get down on the dance floor in Mexico City and take a thrilling ride across Europe's theme parks. The issue also contains a business report into the owners reviving their high streets and tours a design icon towering above Valencia, plus much more. Kick back this summer with Monocle's July-August issue. Order your copy today or subscribe to get instant access online. So Natalie, tell me where we're heading to next. You, you went from Florence and then on to... On to Milan right after on a train that was filled with fashion people. So a nice little back-to-back. Exactly. <laughs> there was no like, escaping it. It was like a school trip, all of us going from one city to the other. And tell me about Milan Fashion Week. This is, I guess, the sort of one that seems to hit the news headlines perhaps more, more broadly than Pitti Uomo, certainly at least what I was picking up. What makes Milan firstly different from Florence and then why was everyone heading there? So Milan is where... The big shows start. It's it's a packed schedule full of the, those headline-making brands, one after the other, hosting their shows. So you will see more headlines around around the shows. But at the same time, for the men's fashion weeks, there is a lot to discover. 
outside the shows, in showrooms, in small presentations because uh, of Italy's uh, tradition and heritage when it comes to tailoring. Tell me about those shows. Were there any standout shows, anyone that broke the mould that really grabbed your attention? I was really excited to attend the Valentino show. Um, it was the first time in three years that they showed in Milan and showed a dedicated menswear show, which was interesting in itself. And I thought it was great that Pierpaolo Piccioli uh, chose the Università degli Studi, which is uh, and, and one of the biggest universities in Milan, and they chose to show during school hours so that students can come in and, and be part of the show. So, and his idea was to create a dialogue with the students, with the city, and for us to be able to experience the architecture of the building, which is incredible, and, and the show took place in, in an open courtyard. I mean, I think there's something to be said about that in terms of the ability for these shows to open up the city to the people that actually live, live there. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time at, at, at design weeks and, and design trade fairs, you know, looking at furniture, looking at nice chairs. But so much of it is driven by the context in, w- in which they're presented. And I actually think it's, it's, it's really important, you know, to see fashion in, in a university because that's where people are making it, but that's also where people are wearing it. Are you seeing this as a growing trend across, uh, or, you know, fashion weeks everywhere where people are trying to, I guess invite unexpected experiences in completely new places. Yes, and I think it's it's a change that's really welcome because traditionally fashion was the opposite of what you're saying. It was very much everything behind closed doors, hard to navigate if you weren't an insider, and there was a lot of gatekeeping. But now it is really opening up and the venues that the designers are choosing is one way, one easy way to to make these events more accessible. Even if it's an open air show and passersby can stop by or people who live nearby can look through their windows. And I find it really touching when I'm in a show and I can see people from the building next door peeking through their windows. I mean, I think it's really important as well, I guess, in terms of, you know, these brands, sure, there are some that are very exclusive and they maintain a real high level of quality that perhaps makes them, you know, not a mass market sort of product. But the work that they're doing is incredibly important, whether that's working with artisans that are particularly skilled or reinventing supply chains. So I think rather than gatekeeping, that whole opening up experience is is really important. I I just wanted to reiterate that because I completely agree with you, particularly on the furniture side as well. I mean, I know you also spoke to Italian menswear manufacturer uh, Corniliani. Can you tell me a little bit about their showcase and, and what drew you in? Yeah, Corneliani was an interesting one this season because they presented a sort of rebrand. They've been working on rethinking the collection a little bit, modernizing their silhouettes and also in order to gain relevance partner with uh, an architecture studio which created an installation for them to showcase the collection in. And I think that's really important. Brands now have to be a lot more aware about what else is going on around them and work with artists and architects and and other designers to create more interesting contexts when they present their collections. And Corneliani, as well as a, a lot of these Italian heritage brands, have been putting a lot of effort in modernizing themselves, writing new chapters. And especially after the pandemic, the brand had to shut a lot of its stores. So now they are 
reopening stores, rethinking their brand identity. It's great to to see a, a fresh chapter and, and business sort of restarting again. Amazing. And I think working with architects, like you said there, this really is about contextualising fashion and showing that it's not just about being on runways, but I guess being in a host of different environments. So you spoke to Stefano Grazioso Tramonti. He's the general manager and style director of Corneliani. Let's hear from him now. From now on, Corneliani will start using different creative minds around the world, architects, musicians, DJs, sculptors, painters, to invite them to work with us in order to create something together. We started with a Parisian architect studio, that is GGSV, Gaira and Stefan. We started thinking of using this material, that this is a is compressed paper, that you can use in different ways. You can do chairs that are looking very shiny, like marble. You can do these kind of things, very rough, very primitive, very materic. And you get to do a house for our collection with this architect studio. So this was the, whole, the starting of the project, let's say. It's all hand-painted and hand-made. So the idea of that we do also, starting from fabrics, our clothes, was very matchy, very nice. Stefano Grazioso Tramonti from Corneliani there. Now, Natalie, he, he spoke you know, at length there about their collaboration with the architects GGSV. Is there something to be said about the industry as a whole, you know, working with a host of different disciplines? And are you seeing, I guess, architectural influences come into to fashion? Are you seeing furniture influences come into fashion? Or is it as simple as just realising that, hey, these are two complementary things, let's put them side by side? In some cases, architects are a huge inspiration for fashion designers. Prada this season mentioned looking at fluid architecture as inspiration and used it as a springboard to create sort of silhouettes that offered freedom to the body. But in other cases, brands are really looking for cultural relevance these days. So teaming up with architects and designers, chefs, DJs, any creative is is a really huge priority for them. That also makes sense in terms of, you know, so many creatives, you know, whether they're fashion designers or architects, uh, work across so many different disciplines. So I, I guess this fusion, even if it's expanding out into, you know, restaurants, chefs, that sort of completely different world makes sense. Were you seeing any of this uh, in Paris, which is where we're going to head to next? Yes. So in Paris, I think the conversation really reached a peak when the week opened with Pharrell's debut show for Louis Vuitton, which is what made the biggest headlines during that week. I mean, were you there? (laughs) I was there and I really enjoyed the experience. I mean, half of the city was closed for the event and we had to take a boat from the left bank and we went to the Pont Neuf, which was closed for the show. It was covered in a checkerboard carpet. There was music. It all happened. It was perfectly timed when the sun was setting. It, it was a really joyful, dreamy event. I mean, why why was this such a big deal? Why was everyone going crazy, I guess, about Pharrell's first collection? I think just the fact that Louis Vuitton is such a huge brand. It's one of the biggest brands in the world with revenues of over 20 billion. It, it, just that in itself makes it all a really big deal with high stakes. Pharrell's profile created a lot of discussion and excitement around uh, around his debut. And, and also he was a bit of an unlikely candidate being 
mostly known as a musician rather than a traditionally trained designer. So there was curiosity, excitement, and at the same time, some criticism about his appointment and, and what he was going to do. What was your you know reaction or your thoughts on, on the work that he presented? I had a really positive response to what I saw. Of course, the spectacle uh, that he created was what really elicited some an emotional reaction in all of us who were there at the show. The, the music was incredible. The event, it was a love letter to Paris in a way. So being on, on a historic location that was closed off for, for everyone to just experience. I mean, all of his famous friends were there. So that took a lot of attention, but there were a lot of interesting ideas in the collection as well, from his personal style to traditions of tailoring to the way he played with the traditional Louis Vuitton checkerboard pattern. And he, like we've been speaking about the value of uh, craft and the artisans who make these luxury pieces. And I think he made a really positive statement. He took his bow with all of the Louis Vuitton artisans with him. So all in all, it was a really positive, joyful statement, I think. And I think a really powerful almost summary of of what you saw over the course of three weeks. Now, I know you also spoke to uh, Gautier Bossarello from FirstAct. Did you see, I guess, any parallels with the presentation from this French menswear label versus, I guess, Louis Vuitton and, and what you saw across the, the two weeks of your reporting? There aren't any obvious parallels given the scale of the, the scales of the two brands, but at the same time, that was the beauty of what was going on in Paris. One day you were on the Pont Neuf, which was ex- closed off for the catwalk and then you would be in a small showroom discovering a younger brand. Again, Paris is also becoming a lot more international with a lot of British brands like Bianca Saunders, Grace Wills Bonner decamping to Paris to show their collections. Um, I found a really interesting Korean brand called Solid Om. And Fursak drew a lot of attention this season for its uh, presentation because it's uh, a contemporary uh, tailoring brand, a lot more accessible in terms of its pricing. But the creative director, Gautier Borsarello, um, has big plans to make it more global and to refresh uh, its image in general. Well, let's hear from Gautier Borsarello now. So I think it was time to be a bit more bold and to to be confident and to do something stronger than before. Well, the collection is about Brittany. It's a fantasy about a guy from Paris going to Brittany on holiday. It's interesting because usually a lot of the designers do it the other way around. Someone from outside coming into Paris. No, no, because yeah. it's actually a little bit of my story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was born and raised in Paris, but with the Breton, Breton blood. So I'm really attached to this land and mm-hmm. I wanted to do a collection that is better than it actually is, you know, because if you go there, it's not that nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would like it to look like this all the time, you know, so I, I designed the collection thinking about this. And uh, yeah, it's, it's new money in a way, which I really like. There's no patina, no fade, really something that's really new. In France, it's not really a compliment when you say new money. And to me, it is because it shows that you did it by yourself. So I think it's more valuable than something you just had when you were born. I like to keep this in mind. It's the first guy is 
was born not rich and he makes his own thing and now he has the, yeah. the, the, the budget he just wanted to spend the right way and to have the codes of this cast above him that he doesn't really know I think there's something very touching about this kind of profile that wants to understand how you behave to when you go to a restaurant when you have three forks and three knives and go to the opera because th that's a little bit of my story and I always felt like oof I don't know how to act now I remember when I was 15 I was in the bus with a friend who was really upper class and I was really not we played classical music together and I said, oh, when I'm going to be rich, I will have a, a Rolex and Western for my shoes. And he said, no, no, I want Patek Philippe and John Love. And I, was like, I had no idea what it was. And since then, I'm obsessed, like, wow, I don't have these codes and I have to study and to understand. So Fursak is a bit like this, this kind of persona who are moving into life. Fursak is really the suit you buy when you have your first job or when you get married. It's an important act and it's always been. We're completely okay with our past. This is us and it's been us for 50 years. So I'm not like, huh, no, this was before and now it's me. <laughs> it's more an evolution. And this guy now wants to get dressed from Monday to Sunday for everything in his life. I know I'm not supposed to say it, but after she slapped me on the hand. <laughs> but it would be to define the French Ralph Lauren, to define a brand that when you think about the brand, you think about the country. When you think about Ralph Lauren, you see USA. When you think about Armani, you see Italy. When you think about Boss, you think Germany. And I think that's super, or Yamamoto, you think Japan, mm -hmm. you know, even if in Paris. But I think it's super strong when you, uh, a brand um, synthesizes a global lifestyle from a country. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're doing yeah. here. Fursac is not cool. You know what I mean? It's not like cool. No, it's more structured and a bit elegant and elevated. And yeah. when you buy something, you want it to last as long as possible. I love cool brands, you know, there's a lot of cool brands that I really like. But here it always has to be neat. If you look at the, yeah. at the clothes, it's always very sharp. I love this idea of sort of defining the brand around France and French style, but it feels like you have a vision of a modern France or a sort of a new France. What, what, is, what is that vision like? I How think do it's you my obsession to, to take the, the French identity to the fascist, yeah. you know? And I come from the suburb in a place where there is Arabs, Africans, uh, everyone is poor mm -hmm. and we all live together and I'm originally from there. And I think that helped me a lot to see a France that maybe doesn't exist, but I love it. <laughs> to take the cause of the French and take it from the far right, because when you put a, a French flag on your window, you're a far right guy. And I think that's very sad because France is the opposite of that. And this flag shows the opposite of that. And I think it's a bit sad that now it belongs to them. So I would like to work around France with the beautiful values that we used to have, <laughs> because there is no uh, French brand for men that synthesize the French lifestyle globally. Some very good French brand, but they don't have um, this goal to talk about the French style. That's why I, I talk about Ralph Lauren, because I wanted to do in a very obvious way. That's yeah. why I put some French flags on the shirt, because to me it reminds me of 1945, when mm -hmm. uh, the Liberation, when everyone has French flag, it says like liberty, freedom, open, you know, you can all come to our country, blah, blah. I mean, you speak about neatness and polish as part of this style. What are some other codes or key items that make the collection and then this idea of the global French vision style? Is, is the French from the 60s to the 80s. When you say French vestiaire, it's super difficult to picture someone. It would be like greasy hair and a cigarette and a coffee, but it's not <laughs> in terms of clothes, it's just a gray suit. So it's very difficult to do a full collection. I had to create something that doesn't exist. I studied the cinema from this era with one people I really like is Eric Romer mm. uh, and I'm obsessed with him and his photography and his style. There's a new one called Bruno Dumont, but it's from today. I'm studying him for the next season for winter. But I, I love to start with the cinema from an era because people are dressed from the era. The starting point is it has to be French, the inspiration. 
at some point. Even the bomber jacket that's American has been mm. worn here by the French army. And I always have to link it with France at, at some point. It has to be from the 60s to the 80s. With, it's the period we were still a bit French, but influenced by Americans and Africans coming to France in the 60s, 70s, and Arabs from Northern Africa. So this is this mix that's super interesting to me. And after, it's too Americanized. Like after the 80s, we are already two Americans. So it's not very interesting. That was Gautier Bossarello, creative director of contemporary French menswear label Fursac. Now, what I particularly liked about that conversation you had with him was his mention of, of, you know, Fursac appealing to new money and not being afraid of, I guess, not trying to root itself in in history or or tradition and instead push boundaries. What was your take on that, Natalie? I found the new money concept quite interesting because in France, usually being new money or nouveau riche, as they call it, is really looked down upon. So it's quite daring of him to embrace that identity as a quintessentially French label and and make it his own and divorce it from the snobbery that it's usually attached to. The other thing is that uh, that sense of being contemporary and accessible. He told me that he wants to be the brand that offers quality and craft, but at the same time, it's a price point that any guy on the street can save up to and buy a great fursac suit or someone who is more well-off will buy a couple of them every year and, and re- just rely on the brand for all their basics. So it's, it's an interesting concept and I think we need the premium luxury brands as much as we do those contemporary brands that are reliable and have those easier price points. I think what's nice there and what you're, what you're essentially getting at is that there's room and a place for everyone and every brand. I guess closing remarks or closing statements from, I guess, your two weeks on the road, are there any big takeaways that, you know, perhaps apply to fashion, but also move beyond that, you know, other industries can, can also take from? I think there's room for everyone is a great takeaway and we should give credit to Mei Li who is behind the glass. (laughs) You're not going to let me steal that one. Nope. And I think the other takeaway would be that we should not put creatives into boxes anymore and we need to accept that fashion brands are really changing, moving beyond just producing collections to music and architecture and design and we will be seeing less conventional creative directors and and more cross-sector collaborations and I don't know if you as a design specialist are up for that as well 100% this is this is exactly what I want to be seeing and you know I was at three days of design in in Copenhagen the other week and you're certainly seeing this cross-pollination of disciplines sort of everywhere you go because you know if you're a furniture firm you're going to be working with textiles and sure enough there's also fashion designers that have worked with textiles and all of a sudden the innovation that they've used is being brought into your work and you can sort of see how these things start to snowball. But I think that's the perfect spot to end for today's show. Natalie Theodosi, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Thank you. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.